Let's begin this morning by um, going back to Psalm 119 in our hymnal. Let's see, we're on page 829. We'll pray the second portion of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, 33 to 56, as we continue to discuss the scriptures. Psalm 119, of course, is the great psalm on God's word. It's on page 829 of your hymnal. We'll pray this responsively together as we begin this morning. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law, forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings, and will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands, because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me without restraint, for, but I do not turn from your law. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. In the night I remember your name, O Lord, and I will keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. Heavenly Father, this morning as we um, gather um, on the Lord's Day, the day set apart by the resurrection of your Son from the dead, um, we pray that you would bless our worship um, um, in about an hour, Lord, that you would draw near to us by your Spirit, that you would um, draw us into your presence and minister to us by uh, means of that same Holy Spirit, that you would give us Christ. Um, in the means of grace, in word and sacrament and prayer. And we ask now this morning, um, as we continue to discuss and consider um, the value and significance and meaning of the scriptures, that you would grant us uh, wisdom, Father, by your spirit, that we might indeed meditate on these things, that we might indeed um, love um, your word, love uh, your commands, Father, which you have given us in Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to be with all of you today. Hopefully you have a handout that says week five of Scripture, chapters or sections eight to ten. Um, we are continuing a discussion of the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is, a, in my view, one of the, the most remarkable expressions of the doctrine of Scripture 
um, in all of um, church history, really. Um, and it's important to remember that the Westminster Confession of Faith, even though it is largely a, a Presbyterian document now, um, that the writers of the Westminster Confession um, did not consider themselves, by and large, to be Presbyterians, per se. They saw themselves as simply um, uh, Protestant Christians. Um, and so Westminster Confession of Faith, before it is a Presbyterian, or quote-unquote, reform document, um, is uh, a, just a classical Protestant um, statement of faith. Um, it's a confession in that sense. It had a, had a broader um, a base and a broader communication. Um, and, and in many ways was, as we've talked, the sort of last of the great Protestant confessions of the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, I've included a quote here at the very top from a man named Andrew Sandlin, who's a contemporary uh, theologian. He says, creeds and confessions are necessary not because they can replace the Bible, but because they're a product of a serious, sustained, communal investigation of the Bible's meaning. They remind us that other godly people were pondering biblical truth long before we got around to it. I think that's a helpful um, just sort of a framework to think about the confessions. We'll, we'll talk about this today, actually, that the confession itself makes it clear that um, the Bible is supreme in all things, even over um, the Westminster Confession, of course. Um, uh, but there is a place for creeds and confessions of the church. Um, they are the, the, the product, the fruit of long, um, uh, continued, sustained investigation, interpretation of the Bible. And as such, they're a great help to us, I think, um, as the modern church today, um, to remember that, that we are not starting from scratch as we ponder um, what the scriptures mean and what they teach. Um, rather, we are uh, part of a great company of witnesses. Um, we're going to begin with chapter 8 today there, which I've put on your handout. Um, we start, started by looking at the first half of this statement um, last Sunday, but we'll pick it up. I'll read it in a whole, and then we'll, I'll say a few things about the beginning part of it, and we'll focus more on the end. Um, so the, the theme of this uh, section, this chapter, or this, yeah, this section, um, is the text and translation of the scriptures. Um, and... Um, let me read it to you and listen to it. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, uh, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. So we talked last time about um, the way in which um, uh, they are recognizing that the, the Bible was not written in English, um, for example. It was actually written in uh, Hebrew and Greek. Um, Hebrew because that was the language that was the language given to Israel. Um, and then uh, the New Testament Greek because that was the most commonly spoken language um, of the Mediterranean world um, at the time. Um, and they're saying that, that God has immediately inspired the scriptures written in that particular language, and those autographs, those documents, those manuscripts in which it was first written down. And for this reason, uh, whenever there are controversies of religion, um, the church is to appeal to those original manuscripts, those original um, languages that the, the scriptures were written in. And this is part of the reason why, within the Presbyterian tradition at least, um, there has always been a very high view of uh, the necessity of ministers learning Greek and Hebrew um, so that they can read 
uh, the Bible in Greek and Hebrew in the, the original languages. I, in many ways, spent you know th for three really years of my life, four years of seminary, but three years really focused on the languages, learning uh, Greek and Hebrew. Um, it was one of the primary things I did in, in um, seminary. Um, you know, taking uh, introduction to Greek. I'm taking um, the sort of more advanced class, taking uh, Greek and exegesis, where we translated Colossians and then taking um, three different New Testament classes um, in the Gospels and then the uh, Paul's epistles and then the general epistles, um, all working in the original languages, writing exegetical papers, doing translation work in those classes. Um, and then the same for Hebrew, again. Uh, in many ways, that was really you know, the primary thing about seminary, and I can assure you it was certainly the hardest thing about seminary, um, at least for me, um, was, was the work that was necessary to do in uh, Greek and Hebrew. And that's, that is, just so you know, in case you're not aware, required for any minister um, who's going to be ordained in, the, in our denomination, the PCA. Um, they have to um, know Greek and Hebrew. They have to go to seminary and learn these things, and it requires serious and committed study. It requires years of your life. It's not a, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, and, and this, you know, historically, this has been a distinction between the Presbyterian Church um, in America, just generally, and other streams of the church. Um, and, uh, and it's one of the reasons why um, Presbyterian did not grow as quickly on the frontiers of the United States as Methodism or, um, or Baptist churches, uh, because generally speaking, um, those churches did not require um, ministers to go to seminary and learn the original languages. And so they were able to ordain men much more quickly. Um, whereas if you wanted to be a, a Presbyterian minister, you had to, at that time, go to Princeton, basically, and you know, learn, um, learn Greek and Hebrew and spend a long time um, doing that. And interestingly, the same really is true today. I mean, the PCA is unusual in that it requires this. That is not typical of most evangelical um, denominations. But still, um, you know, the, there are other denominations where you can go to seminary in two years or, you, you know, you can do it much more quickly. Um, but within our tradition, within other conservative, reformed, Presbyterian denominations like the OPC, and others, there still is this fundamental emphasis on, if you're gonna be a pastor, you have to know Greek and Hebrew. And the reason for that is because these are the immediately inspired um, texts that the Lord has given us. And if you're gonna be someone who's handling God's word, you need to be at least proficient um, in those languages enough um, to engage with commentaries, um, to understand how translation works, how the language works, to distinguish between um, controversies within the text, that kind of thing. Um, so that's, that's just something important for you to know. But that's the first half of this statement. Um, and, and all of these men um, would have been qualified in that way, would have known Greek and Hebrew um, as ministers of the word. Um, but they have a heart not only for making sure that those in the leadership of the church are, are able to deal with the original languages, their, their heart goes beyond that. So picking up in the second half of the statement, but, they say, because these original tongues, that is Greek and Hebrew, are not known to all the people of God who have right unto and interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore, they ought to learn Greek and Hebrew. No, that's, that could have been a direction they went, right? Um, that's the direction that Islam goes. Um, you know, if you're gonna read the Quran, if you're really gonna read the Quran, you've gotta read in Arabic. Um, but they don't say that. They say, therefore, they are to be interested, or, or to make a parallel statement, in the context of the time, 
if you are a Roman Catholic, uh, what language do you need to learn to read the Bible? Not Greek or Hebrew, but Latin, right? Um, this is a, a big deal. We'll talk about that more in a second. Um, no, therefore, they are to be translated into, not Latin, um, but into the vulgar language, the, the common language, right? The, the vernacular, um, we might say today, of every nation unto which they come. So if the gospel comes to England, it need to be translated to English, to France, to French, etc., etc. Um, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him, that is, all the people of God may worship him, in an acceptable manner and through the patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. This is such a, a lovely statement, I think, about the significance of the scriptures for the people of God. And it's important to remember um, that this was one of the defining features of the Protestant Reformation, right? Like often we think of the Protestant Reformation um, being primarily about justification by faith alone, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, of course, those things were fundamental. But I would say just as fundamental in many ways was um, the, the emphasis that the reformers had uh, beginning in the 16th century and even before that with men like Wycliffe and Tyndall um, of the, the, the necessity of God's people being able to read God's word in a language that they could comprehend for themselves. Um, and this was one of the primary conflicts that, that took place between the Roman Catholic Church and those who sought to reform it. Um, because the Roman Catholic Church had an approved translation of the scriptures, right? Um, it was done by Jerome, um, it was called the Vulgate, um, and it was um, in Latin. And, and, and that was, interestingly, um, that was the language that priests learned, right? They didn't learn Hebrew and Greek, they learned Latin. And actually, relig religious controversies, generally speaking, uh, were not... Um, you know, until some of the work that happened in the 15th, 16th century took place, um, were not resolved by going to the Greek or Hebrew, but going to the Latin, going to Jerome's translation um, and, and seeing how he had put it in the Latin. Um, so this was a huge deal within the Protestant Reformation that God's people need to have God's word in their own language um, where they can comprehend it and understand it. And in addition to that, as a consequence of that, God's people also ought to worship in a common language that they can speak. The, the, the prayers, the, the songs, all the worship should be something they can participate in, and as a requirement of their participation, they need to be able to speak the language. So English people should worship in English. That's why the Book of Common Prayer is written. Um, it is, it is uh, largely, at least the original Common Prayer, Book of Common Prayer was a lot of work taking things that were in Latin and making, putting them in English so that people could understand them, understand the prayers they were praying or the, or the prayers that they were hearing um, uh, from, the, from, the, from the pastor. Um, so there, therefore, they are to be translated, and, and, and so much blood was spilled over this. I mean, so much of the persecution that took place in the early days of the Reformation was around precisely this issue, right? Um, the issue of it was illegal um, in England um, to have the Bible in English, and you were in, it was a danger. It was seen to be a very dangerous thing um, because who knows what might happen if people um, start to be able to have the Bible for themselves. Um, and this is a, a huge part of the legacy of the Reformation. Um, and, and it's interesting, like today we take it very um, for granted, right? That I should be able to go on Amazon or to a bookstore and just buy the Bible in English, or if I'm a Spanish speaker in Spanish or whatever. Um, but it's just important for us to realize that that's actually, that is a consequence of the Protestant Reformation. Like that's a direct consequence. Um, the way that that now seems just like 
obvious. Um, and, you know, in most, you know, many languages of the world at least, it, it is um, easily available um, for us. Um, that, that the scriptures are given to us in the vernacular. And it's because of this emphasis. And, and notice what the, um, the, the reform or the divines who wrote the standards, what, what is the argument that they make? They say, and part of it's just a practical thing, it's just like not everybody knows Greek or Hebrew, um, but the people of God have a right unto and an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. That's why, therefore, they be translated. Um, Chad Van Dixhorn, this quote, the further down on the page, I like the way he puts it here. He's a, a contemporary commentator on the confession. He says, it is not often that the Westminster Assembly spoke of the quote-unquote rights of Christians, but men gathered there were convinced that every child of God has an equal right to hear his or her father's voice. Every child of God has an interest, has something invested and hearing and reading God's word, and every person under heaven has a duty to read and search the scriptures. Um, and this is a phenomenal thing, right? This idea that, that God wants us to be able to understand the scriptures. Um, I mean, the, the languages of the world, to some extent, I mean, this is an interesting thing we'll talk about in more detail um, this spring as we get to um, Genesis 11, but um, you know, the, or Genesis 10, the, the Tower of Babel and all of those things that take place um, is, is where we, we believe that human languages really are dispersed and begin. There begins to be confusion among um, different peoples. Um, but, but the Bible being translated into all those different languages that come out of Babel um, begin to, to, in some ways, re, become a basis of regathering the people of God together in a way, um, all bound, even though they speak different languages, by a common uh, book, a common text um, that they now can all read for themselves. And again, this is, this is a very different kind of understanding. This is a very different approach to evangelism um, than other religions, uh, most especially Islam. Again, if you're going to be Islamic, if you're really going to understand the Quran and read it accurately, you have to learn Arabic. Um, and Christianity has, has well, you can make the argument it has been that way at times, um, but at least since the Protestant Reformation, it has not been that way. It has said, no, the Word of God is going to come near to you. The Word of God is going to be something that you can understand and appreciate in your own language. Uh, Lethem, Robert Lethem, says this. He says, translations are required so that all can read and hear the Word of God in their own language so that every nation can worship God in, in an acceptable manner. Note again the missionary vision of the assembly extending to the ends of the earth. This is a far cry from Islam, for which the Quran is only the Quran in its Arabic original. And contrast the universality of the gospel, right? The gospeling for all the nations, um, as the New Testament writers went to such pains to communicate, together with the inability of most people to read the original languages, requires translation. So we can say that, that this... Um, it's interesting, they're, they're basically working out their principles about scripture and application in this way, right? There, there's no text in the Bible necessarily that says the Bible must be translated into the vernacular of wherever it goes, right? Paul didn't say that explicitly. But they're basically saying the Bible is for all the nations, right? Um, and we believe that the Bible is so important for people to understand, you, you might have gone back to Nehemiah, right? And thought about 
the way in which Ezra read the law of God and the people heard it and it, and it convicted them and they wept and they rejoiced and, and just thought, you know, that'll never happen if they don't speak the language, if they don't understand it. So therefore, ergo, um, and they might have also contemplated the fact that, oh, well, the Bible was originally written in Greek, which, yeah, we don't know Greek, most people don't know Greek, you know, in the year 1500 or whatever, but lots of people knew Greek um, in uh, the first century, and the Bible was intentionally written not in classical high Greek, but in street Greek, right, in Koine Greek, common Greek, so that it would be a common language that people would generally understand. And then they, they took all of that and they applied those principles and said, even though there's not a proof text, so to speak, yet we believe that the scriptures themselves require that they be translated into the vernacular um, for um, every uh, people. Um, these translations, Lethem goes on to say, while distinct from the Bible in the original languages are still the word of God, conveying clearly that knowledge required for salvation. And that's important to see here, right? They are saying that the reason why the language, the scriptures need to be translated into the vernacular is not so that uh, in that new vernacular language, um, religious controversies can be settled, but so that the people of God can all read the word of God um, so that the word of God may dwell plentifully in them, that they might worship him in an acceptable manner, and through the patience and comfort of the scriptures have hope. So they're saying, it's okay if you don't know Greek. You don't have to know Greek in order um, to have the word of God dwelling plentifully with you, in order to know how to worship God in an acceptable manner, in order to have the patience and comfort that the scriptures give you that lead to hope. Does that make sense? Like, that's a profound thing that they're saying that the, the inspiration of the Spirit, the way that God works through these things, uh, means that, that reading the Bible in English is sufficient. It is enough for God to speak to you directly in his word. And that's a, I, f I feel like that should be a hugely liberating thing for us. Now, this doesn't excuse the need for there to be faithful translations of the Bible and certainly some English translation. Right? I mean, we have this absurd a plethora of translations, right, in English in some ways. I mean. Don't get me wrong, it, and if we had all the time and resources in the world, every language should have you know, lots of different translations. Um, but you know, there are so many translations in English um, compared to other uh, languages that have so few less or not at all any. Um, and some of those English translations are better than others, and we could talk about that or whatever, um, why we use the ESV, for example, versus other translations. But, but the point remains that the word of God in, the, in your common language, if it's a faithful translation, is sufficient for you to know God. And that's a beautiful thing, I think. Any thoughts or questions about this chapter here? This section, chapter eight? James? I was wondering if maybe you could comment on like, how and why the ESV has become um, the favors translation in the PCA. Sure. Uh, I'm not an expert on these issues. Um, that is true. Um, that happened before I came into the PCA, um, which I came into the PCA around the early 2000s. Um, and so, um, so I can't really comment on, I, I would guess that most PCA churches were using the, maybe the NIV or, I don't know. Do you know, Lauren, like what was the sort of common PCA translation before the ESV took hold? Right. Interesting. Yeah. Um, that that was my impression. Was the NIV was kind of the, and that was true generally for most evangelical churches. I think probably. 
um, was the NIV. Um, so I don't know why the NASB wasn't, for example, a more um, common translation used in pulpits in the PCA before that. Um, I will say that the ESV was intended to be um, a continuation of the King James uh, version tradition. Um, it comes out of the RSV, which is itself a revision of the King James. And so the ESV was a, um, a, a fresh sort of um, uh, revision of the RSV, um, but, but it's very self-consciously within the, the, the tradition of the King James in terms of the, many of its translation decisions and its language. Um, and, and that was a, and I think that's an important thing. It's, I think it's part of the argument I would use for the ESV because I think the King James matters. Um, it was the first... Um, of course, uh, you know, at least generally available um, scriptural translation in the English. Um, it, it really, as I'm sure you know, James, had a lot of um, influence over English as a modern language as it came to be in terms of it's probably the most foundational document for that, of course. Um, um, and so I think there's wisdom as people who continue to speak that same English language to have a translation that is in the stream of the original, so to speak. Um, the ESV, of course, also in comparison to the, to the NIV is a much more literal, um, careful translation. Um, I, I prefer the ESV um, personally. Um, I, I know some people like the NASB, for example. For me, the NASB is pretty clunky in terms of the way that it um, just the the way it's written. I don't think it's as um, well-crafted as the ESV is. I appreciate the ESV for that reason. And, um, and I think it's sufficiently literal to be um, a faithful translation. Doesn't mean I agree with all the decisions, of course, that the translator makes. But I, I do personally think the ESV is the best modern English translation. Um, yeah, Lauren and, and Jeremy. Yeah, I would just say that <coughs> probably the three translations really wasn't a, a new translation. It was more um, getting rid of the more esoteric Old English kind of things, right. um, capitalizing, um, you know, um, references to, to God, God yeah. all throughout, right. which, um, you know, some of us love that translation because we were very familiar with the King James yeah. growing up. Yes. But um, I think the biggest, and maybe you can speak more on this, but the biggest difference between ESV and NIV is Absolutely. Yeah. NIV is very much a paraphrase. Yeah. In that phrase, not paraphrase, but yeah, phrase by phrase. Yeah. The ESV would be more literal, you know, word for word translation. Probably considered more accurate, but both of them included more recent findings, found manuscripts than the King James ever did, and that's why they're considered probably more superior to the. Yes. There, there are there are different texts or traditions that are at play there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and that's part of it. Uh, Jeremy, did you have a comment? Was that a change that I made when I got here? Was Dale using the ESV, or was he in the New King James? Anybody remember? 
I think that might have been something I did without even fully realizing I was doing it because I was. Yeah. So, so apparently that's something I changed when I got here eight and a half years ago or so. I think he's used several. And I think he yeah. actually liked the NASB. Right. If I remember right, was his, what he preached from. But, uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there are strengths and weaknesses um, to all these different translations. Um, in my view, the ESV is, is a, certainly a good and faithful, and I would, I would say I think the one, certainly the one I'm most comfortable with and would most highly recommend in terms of English. Yes, sir. One more and then we'll move on. Yeah, to diction and rhythm and meter and exactly. absolutely. And the ESV tried to kind of preserve that. Yes. Yeah, the NSAB basically just started from scratch and just said we're just going to do something new. And that that is an important. The ESV did not have the same approach. The ESV saw itself as an updated revision of prior work that had been done um, by previous translators. And I and I, I agree. And and honestly, part of my inclination towards the ESV is connected to the fact that I worked very closely. I was a teaching assistant for um, Jack Collins, who was the Hebrew professor at Covenant Seminary where I studied. Um, was, you know, I knew him very well um, in seminary, and he was the editor for the Old Testament. He was the one in charge of the Old Testament translation of the ESV. He spent, you know, I don't know, a decade of his life or something uh, working on that and has continued to work on various revisions that have come through. So I had a kind of personal bias, I guess, um, towards um, his work. Sure. So yes. Kind of, uh, going into yes, the true. Vernacular. The vernacular there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Anything else? <coughs> yes, sir. Nope. PCA does not have a stance on on a modern Bible translation. That's a, that's a great question. You're right. There are some disputed texts. Uh, you'll find that like in 1 John. Um, you'll find that in, um, you know, the, the larger portion in John, the, you know, the woman caught in adultery, for example, is a debated text about whether that was in the original manuscripts or not. I tend to think it was, and I preach it as God's word. I also preach the longer ending of Mark. Um, as well, um, but yeah, there's no established PCA position on those questions. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good question, and I think part of that is because none of those texts that are in dispute um, do anything for us one way or the other about any fundamental doctrines of the faith. Does that make sense? Like, if if I get to heaven one day and I the Lord says, oh, you know, the woman caught in adultery that was not originally written by John. Okay, you know, like, it, that's okay. I can live with that. You know what I mean? Um, it's not going to change anything in terms of the way that I think about God's grace or the person of Christ or whatever. But I do think largely because of the testament of the early church um, that both 
that story of the woman caught in adultery and the longer ending of Mark are original um, to the main to the text. <clears throat> Anything else? Did you have a question or comment, Rachel? Yeah, it's true. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. So Rachel's basically saying, wouldn't it be right to say that the Spirit works um, and aids the translation of the Scriptures, essentially, um, into new languages? And I think that's right. I think there is a um, a kind of holiness that is associated with this work, um, and that we can trust the spirit. Trust the spirit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what they mean when they say <clears throat> um, that the original manuscripts were immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages and are therefore authentical. Um, that those manuscripts were preserved, we believe, by, I mean, everything happens, of course, by God's providence and care, but in a singular way, they want to say a special way, a particular way, God superintended um, the preservation of those documents um, so that we might have access to them. And I think it's fair to say that in a similar way, he um, aids those who faithfully, uh, humbly give themselves the work of translating the scriptures into the vernacular that God's people might understand um, what God said to them. Uh, yeah, James. Yes. Tools that are at our disposal in terms of um, authenticating. Yeah, the, yeah, the kind of textual tradition we have for the Bible, um, particularly the New Testament, um, doesn't. There's no parallel in the ancient world for it. Um, it is far more attested than any other ancient document, um, which is, so yeah, you wouldn't think that given the way that Time every you know year publishes an episode on or an issue of. How do we know who Jesus, did Jesus really exist or whatever? I mean, it's just like absurd, you know? Like Jesus is one of the, by far, most well-attested historical figures, even outside of what, you know, believing in the Holy Spirit um, in ancient history. Um, so anyway, yes, that's, it, is, it is funny the way that works. Um, right? We have much better textual translation or tradition for the New Testament than we do for the Odyssey, for example. Um, but nobody runs around saying, well, you know, um, maybe the Odyssey wasn't really written or something. Go ahead. So, um, a a uh, common objection that I run into when talking to people about the inspiration of the scripture is they say something like, well, I can trust God, but I don't trust like the people translating it, or how do you know that the decisions that they've made in including some texts and not other texts were the right decisions? Mm -hmm. So how do we distinguish between those things that are clearly not part of the scriptures, or at least how do you answer that person in, in saying you can trust 
entirety of, of what you would call the scripture, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question, Alan. Um, so what I would say, one, is that we confess that we do believe um, that statement in the standards that God, by his singular care and providence, kept these texts pure, that he was faithful in that way. And so we, we are dependent upon the Spirit in that way. The second thing I would say is that, um, you know, if you just read a book by Bart Ehrman or whatever, that doesn't make you an expert. Do you know what I mean? But there is actually a thing called, you know, textual criticism that you could spend a year or two um, really studying and realizing that there, that what James and I were just talking about is actually true, that there are, there's a remarkably well-attested textual tradition to the scriptures dating back to, you know, very, very early um, centuries, um, that it's, that there was no um, conspiracy of people who, you know, sifted through all the manuscripts and put some over here because they didn't like them um, and kept the ones they liked, um, that it was something that happened organically by the Spirit, um, that the, the Scripture itself authenticates itself in terms of it being God's Word, um, not only in terms of the quality of the language and, and the scope of its theology, but the way in which it was used um, in the early church. Um, so I, that's what I would say, is that, that there, there really are good, logical, rational reasons to believe that the, the manuscripts that we have are authentic. But if you're really going to understand these issues, it's going to take a little bit of work. Um, it's not, you're not going to like understand it if you spend just an hour or two listening to a podcast or something. You know what I mean? Um, and I mean, in some ways, that's one of the you know, real dangers of our modern world, just, not just about this issue, about anything. Like somebody listens to a 45-minute podcast, and they think they're an expert on you know, like the global economy or inflation or you know, I don't know, anything, right? Any topic. Um, but, but all, you know, knowledge is complicated. And, and, um, and I would say that if you, um, there, there, there are many resources um, and places to really study these things. And I, yeah, I, I would just say we can have confidence that, um, that the manuscripts that we have um, are faithful. But ultimately, we do have to say, I, this is not something I can like, prove to you, like we can't go back in a time machine and trace the whole thing. Um, we do have to, to some extent take it on faith, but I would also argue that's not different from how we take any knowledge that we have of the past. Um, you know, we, we have to, we always have to rely on other people's witness and testimony, right? Um, Julius Caesar, I never met Julius Caesar, right? Um, I, but I believe he existed because I rely on the testimony of other people who lived a long time ago and wrote things down, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to some extent, that's how we engage with the scriptures as well. We have to depend on um, other, other people's testimony and witness to it. And in this case, we, could, we rely on people who gave their lives um, because they thought it was so important. Yeah, Jeremy. Yeah, you, you do have that, I, yeah, there's that reality of really multiple um, 
attestation, yeah, multiple witnesses. And I mean, and, and I, I, do, I do believe this is true, um, uh, Alan. If you read in the ESV, they will put a footnote every time there is a, there is a disputed text. And I would, I would say that there never is a footnote on a text where some kind of fundamental doctrine of the faith would be shifted if this text weren't there or if it were a different, if the alternate translation or alternate version of the original was the actual faithful one. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to lie to you guys at all. Like, I don't want to be deceitful. Like, textual tradition does require people to make decisions at times between different manuscripts, right? Um, and why did God do that? You know, I mean, the Mormons tell us that God gave, you know, Joseph Smith, like, the things on a plate and, uh, you know, like, but that's not how God, aside from, you know, the Ten Commandments, um, decided to give the scriptures. He gave them through uh, people writing, uh, writing things down, and and opened himself up to human participation, which is a fascinating thing to think about, right? Not just the the, the centuries and centuries that we have um, from the point where the scriptures were originally written, especially the Old Testament, and how it's been passed down um, by human beings um, with the superintendent of the Spirit, right? The Spirit causing these things to all work out, but God. You know, he chose to do it that way, which is fascinating. I mean, to me, it reminds me a little bit about, you know, First Corinthians talking about um, the wisdom of God is folly to the world, right? Um, and yet, we are. I think there are also good, rational reasons to have confidence in the scriptures being an accurate representation of what the original writers wrote. Um, and I would argue that we have much better reason to think that than. Um, really any other text from the ancient world. So, yeah, Eric. Just to piggyback on what you're saying, uh, I mean, uh, apologetically, people can say, yeah, I believe in God, but I don't, you know, believe in scripture written by, by people. Um, then you're, you're thrust to the point of, well, okay, so you believe in God in your own imagination. Like, we could just make up a God and say, yeah, we all believe in some God. Yeah, has a story. Over yeah. Several centuries and you know millennia of, of passing it on. If if you're going to, if it's a human thing, if somebody's going to control it and it's going to be one mind, you know, you know, trying to control all the details like Joseph Smith or or, mm-hmm. or Muhammad or, or whatever. And but within that tradition, there's no there's nothing wrong within scripture. Yeah, I, I think it is, a, it is a fascinating thing about Christianity, the way that all of this works and the way in which 
we emphasize both the purity and the trustworthiness of the original manuscripts as well as the, the necessity, the burden to translate things into the vernacular. It is, you know, if you're a religions, religious professor, I mean, this is a very distinctive thing about, um, about our faith and our tradition. Um, yes, ma'am. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, many prophecies that are fulfilled in the Old, I mean, certainly the New Testament writers thought it was important to draw attention to those things. Absolutely, yeah. Anything else? James, yes? I guess maybe it's worth saying that, like, from what we can see, uh, we have the text where there are notes, and then we also have text where there are brackets. Apparatus is being used. Yeah. But um, like that shows us that there are there are levels of certainty, and there are like there's a lot more that's like much more highly certain that it's authentic than there are those oh, yeah. that are really on the line. Yeah. And I think that it's that a tiny it's a tiny percentage of. It'd be helpful for Alan's friends because right. it shows us that there is some kind of process behind. Absolutely. That. Yeah, and there's no, there's no question. I mean, this is just something worth thinking about. Like, there's no document in the world that has been poured over more and studied and manuscripts compared than the New Testament scriptures, right? I mean, it's just, it's remarkable to think about how much time and energy has been put into this, this thing. Um, and that's why it frustrates me when we have people like Bart Ehrman, you know, who just kind of come along and say, well, you know, whatever, those people weren't really serious. I mean, Bart Ehrman's this uh, New Testament professor, I think it's at UNC or something. Um, he's very critical about the historicity of um, the New Testament. And um, it's just like, man, I mean, you just think about the, the learned scholars and the centuries, right? Um, from the very earliest days of the church um, you think about the monasteries. You think about um, you know the, the the renewal of all of this that took place in the in the 15th and 16th centuries as people are going back to the sources and and learning Greek and Hebrew again. You think about all that's happened in the last 400 years. I mean, it's just remarkable the man hours and the intellectual weight that has been put behind. Let's make sure that we understand all of these manuscripts and how they work together. Let's make sure we understand the nuances of New Testament Greek so that we can faithfully put it into um, the vernacular of today. I mean, it, it's astounding. I mean, there's nothing like it in the world um, in terms of other texts that have received the kind of sustained attention and work and devotion um, that the scriptures of the Bible have. And um, I wish, you know, I just wish Time ran an article on that once in a while, right? Um, so, yes. And yet, I, you know, I would just make sure everybody knows, you know, the, the fifth section of this very chapter um, addresses this point. Sure. You talk to agnostics. Right. And you can, you can put forth the beauty of the scriptures, the historicity, yes. the translations, until you're blue in the face. And, and yet, unless the Holy Spirit works in their hearts, yeah. they 
It's a great point. And they will not accept it. And that, that's one of the, I think, one of my favorite sections of this first uh, chapter of the confession, the, the last part of that. Yeah, that fifth section, the fifth paragraph. Um, yet notwithstanding, they say, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the scriptures is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Yeah, and I do think that's true. Um, that ultimately um, we can't argue and rational. I mean, I think we can, I think we can support what we're saying with rational arguments, and we can we can give people comfort um, and encouragement with those things. But ultimately, yeah, the the thing that will give us um, will give us the right posture towards the scriptures ultimately has to be the work of the Spirit in our hearts, um, persuading us of their value. And that, that is something that we have to rely on and say. And that, I mean, this is why I'm a presuppositionist um, in terms of apologetics, um, that, um, that ultimately we can't, we can't rationally argue people into the kingdom of God because it's not, that's not the problem. Um, the problem is that human beings don't even know what rationality is unless God works in them um, and, and persuades them of it by his spirit. All right, this is a great discussion. I'm thrilled that we had a, such a good dialogue and going back and forth. These are really important topics. And, um, you know, we have in our midst um, Eric uh, Pyle, who's, if y'all don't know, works with Wycliffe Bible Translators. I'm sure he would love to talk about these things with you. Um, he and his wife, Allison, have worked on translation projects in the past. Eric now works uh, more on the kind of distribution side um, of Wycliffe. Um, but he would be a great resource to, to think about um, these things. All right, let's, um, let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks um, for your kindness to us in, um, in speaking to us, Father. You might have been silent, um, but you're not. You've spoken by your spirit. And we thank you for that gift um, of the scriptures, that gift that is, ought to be and is um, more precious to us than any amount of wealth or riches, um, that is sweeter um, to our lips than honey. And Father, may you truly give us the grace to approach your word in that way, with that kind of respect, that kind of honor. Um, and may we all today just reflect together again on um, the power of your word, the way in which we can trust it, and, um, and this gift that it is to read the Bible um, in the language that we grew up speaking um, in our homes, um, the language that is familiar to us. Um, I'm grateful, Father, um, for that gift that you've given us by your Spirit, and we pray that you would continue the work of faithful Bible translation um, in all the languages of the world. And we pray especially for those today who are uh, working on new translations of the scriptures. Um, we know that that work is happening always um, because of faithful Christians who, who understand the value of your word. Um, and we pray that you'd bless their efforts, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.